we are sort of oracular. We say things like, here's wisdom, take it. And I think part of the reason people don't trust us is because we don't explain why their intuition may not be correct. We're on the train from New York City, headed to Boston to talk to Abhijit Banerjee. Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Bayrosli. That base station is the next stop in 10 minutes. In poor and rich countries alike, economic growth is a top priority for governments. But over the past several years, growth and productivity have slowed, stoking fears of a global recession. All right, have a good day, ladies. Good luck on that podcast, right? A global downturn would almost certainly further widen the gap between rich and poor in societies worldwide and impede poverty reduction. To mitigate these risks, policymakers have cut interest rates, taxes, and reassessed trade policies. Hi. But our next guest says that what policymakers should really be doing is examining what motivates communities to improve their economic circumstances through trial and error assessments. It's an approach he's spent years perfecting in poor communities worldwide. Abhijit Banerjee is the Ford Foundation International Professor of Economics at MIT. In 2003, he co-founded JPAL, the Abdul Latif Jamil Poverty Action Lab. Okay, we're going up to the fifth floor to meet with Professor Abhijit Banerjee. Floor five. He is the author of several books, most recently Good Economics for Hard Times, co-written with Esther Duflo. In 2019, he, along with Duflo and Michael Kremer, won the Nobel Prize in Economics. Hi, Professor Banerjee. Good, how are you? I'm Elmira. We join him at his office at MIT. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Do you need a few seconds? Uh, Maybe a few seconds. Okay, no problem. Abhijit, let's start with the basics. What is development economics and how does it differ from traditional economics? Isn't all economics development economics? All economics should be development economics, but of course, people have uh, different obsessions and uh, development economics has its own set of obsessions which have to do with, you know, the kinds of problems that maybe you think are a little bit less serious in countries like the U.S. So teachers not showing up in school is less of a problem in the U.S. than in India. And people dying from malaria is less of a problem in the U.S. than in Kenya. So development economists eventually specialize in a set of issues that maybe are more uh, real in developing countries. That's It's not that the, as you say, it's... The, it's the same economics, but some some problems are more salient in some places than others. Traditionally, economists have focused on macroeconomic policy and market incentives to boost growth. That stance has become much more difficult to sustain, especially in advanced economies where almost all of the gains from growth in recent decades have gone to those at the top. 
Why have economists taken so long to understand that sustained growth must be inclusive? To be honest, I think just the dramatic nature of increase in inequality had not actually been documented very well till Thomas Piketty and his group started doing it. So I think a very big piece of it was just there highlighting how much of growth goes to the top 0.01%. That's the kind of thing that people used to kind of think that inequality is going up. They didn't realize how much of it's going up right at the top. That was a very important breakthrough, that just the using the tax data to just map out what's happening to the very, very rich. That's been a big piece of why this has become so much more salient. The other part of it is that I think there was some idea that eventually these things would be self-correcting. Yes, inequality is going up, but it's going to come down. There was this idea, uh, Simon Kuznets, who won the Nobel Prize many years ago, floated this idea of a Kuznets curve, which is that a natural process by which inequality first goes up and then goes down. And there's some automatic um, stabilizing mechanisms in economies. So, you know, the poor should wait for a while, not complain, because eventually it's all going to come back to them. We know now that there have been 40 years of basically flat uh, earnings for the bottom wage earners. You know, every five years, that fact becomes stronger and stronger until I think people just stop believing in this idea that somehow there'll be a, there's an automatic stabilizing mechanism, that things will fix themselves somehow. But I think that that's sort of why I think inequality kind of shifted out of the main focus. It was, it was there, but I don't think people have forgotten that inequality existed. It's just more more this idea that, you know, you shouldn't be obsessed with what happens every year. You should just wait and things good things will eventually happen. It's that kind of faith in the eventual fairness of market economics that I think was at the heart of the problem. You and your team at JPAL are known as the randomistas for your use of randomized control trials, also known as RCTs. What inspired this approach to understanding economic outcomes, and why was it so revolutionary? Because I think randomized controlled trials move us away from using general economic principles to decide policy. They get us to ask questions which are much more, if I do this, does it work? If it doesn't, let's move on. If it works, we learn something. It takes a much more hands-on approach to solving policy problems, to have solutions which are not abstract solutions, education is good, low taxes are good, whatever, things like that, but to have much more granular solutions. This kind of intervention in education, this kind of subsidy towards buying of bed nets for children, to go, go down to the level at which policy operates and answer the question and see which of these work, which of these don't. And I think we've learned an enormous amount by doing that. The way economists usually think about the world is that they have some general principles and that that has implications for policy. You design policy based on big general principles. What the RCT approach did was it said, look, you know, those general principles are worth nothing or very little. And therefore, we have to kind of stare at the details to get it, get it right. You could tell me, invest in education, that's kind of an empty statement because you, I could invest in teachers, I could invest in textbooks, I could invest in pedagogy, I could in, invest in computers. Tell me which of those. And it's not the case that all of those are equally good. In fact, 
Most of those don't do anything for uh, real learning, and a couple of them do. One of JPL's big projects was on education, and one of the things we highlighted at the end of it was that there was basically, of all the standard recipes for fixing education, the only one that really paid large dividends at low cost was fixing pedagogy. I want to stay on the work that you've done with RCTs. Can you tell me about one trial that revealed unexpected insights? Lots. Let me take one that was very, very controversial when it came out. This was the set of trials on microcredit. Microcredit was kind of the flavor of the decade in you know 10, 10 or 15 years ago. But there was no proper evaluation of microcredit. You know, there was this claim that it's you give everybody a small loan and they start a business and their life gets transformed. And there's lots of you know war stories basically. I met X on the road to Y who and she had a microcredit loan and she used to be starving, but now she has a flourishing business. So the question is whether or not those people would have gotten there without microcredit, you know, and how many of them are there? So when we did a randomized control trial, actually there was a series of them, they all found the same thing, which is that they don't actually transform. The average person's life is not transformed by microcredit. Okay, so let's take that. You say microfinance is not changing their circumstances in any way, but at the same time, in researching your work, you've also said that there is utility in microfinance. Absolutely. So when I take alone to buy my house. It doesn't make me richer. It makes me poorer. Uh, but I'm happy to have my house. I am perfectly happy for microcredit to be seen as what it is, which is a source of affordable credit to poor people who use it to you know, buy a refrigerator, buy a television, buy a motorcycle. Those are all wonderful things for them to have. I don't see why I should get a loan and they shouldn't. The fact that I got a loan to buy my house didn't make me richer. I think the presumption that this loan will actually let you start a business and the business will then make you richer, that's where I think the evidence is quite negative. We'll be right back. Hey, listeners, it's Elmira. Exciting news from Opinion Has It. If you're in the New York area on February 25th, we're hosting a live recording at the Brooklyn Public Library. I will be interviewing economist and Nobel laureate Joseph Stiglitz and New York Times bestselling author Adnan Dardas. To RSVP to the event, which is free, go to Brooklyn Public Library's website and search Project Syndicate. Hope to see you there. So you said you got a loan for your house and you're happy to have that. It doesn't make you richer or poorer. How do you view then universal basic income? Would that actually help the redistribution of wealth? I think that it would definitely help the redistribution of wealth if it's done in addition to, I mean, a lot of the conversation on universal basic income actually is for, let's take all the other things that we give to the poor and turn them into universal basic income, substitute it in which case it doesn't necessarily make them richer. But it's, I think, yes. The question more is, in a country like the U.S., whether you want to 
give everybody a relatively small transfer or you want to target that to people who really need it. And it seems to me that the argument is more that in the U.S. there's lots of people who you can, for identifiable reasons, who are really, really suffering. And you might, may want to target that money to them rather than kind of blanket everybody uh, with a small amount. So I, I think you could give them more money. If you give fewer people, you give them more money. And I think there's a reasonable case to be made that since the people who were hit by China trade and things like that uh, were quite identifiable groups of people, we should go and help them directly rather than say that, well, you'll get a small piece of what's going to everybody. Critics of RCTs, such as economist Angus Deaton, argue that they're expensive, that they address trivial questions and raise ethical issues. How do you respond? I think there is this idea that somehow there are these important questions which we have now answered and or we can answer using other techniques and those are going to really save lives or make people richer. I don't know that we've done much in economics that's really reliable and tells us that, you know, do this and you're going to get a lot of people's lives saved. I mean, we, we certainly know that when you, when you get children under malaria bed nets, and that was a result of our set of RCT results, which they turned into policy, they saves lives. It's malaria deaths have fallen by half in the last 10 years. Uh, so I, I, I think there is this idea that somehow if we didn't do this, we would do something else. And that's so wonderful. I have no idea what that is. I've spent now 30 years doing economics. I am yet to find out what that is. You've written about polls that rank public trust in various professions. Politicians are the least trusted, but economists aren't too far ahead. <laughs> With economic questions often at the heart of debates on major issues, particularly immigration and trade, that presents a very big challenge. Why do people perceive economists as untrustworthy, and how can we address that? I think that economists... Partly they have been wrong systematically. I mean, we've been, you know, we just talked about how there's going to be trickle down and everything's going to come together. And, you know, once we have tax cuts, we're going to have growth. I mean, whether those economists are necessarily the best economists, it's often the case that the best economists are more skeptical of these kinds of simplistic messages. But on TV, they hear Economics X has said that this tax cut will stimulate growth beyond all dreams. And so they associate them, and now they've realized that these things somehow don't work out. And, and so they're suspicious of that man on the TV who is called an economist. How do we fix it? We just wrote a book called uh, Good Economics for Hard Times. The point of that book was to try to argue that economists actually have useful things to say, not necessarily the things that you associate with them, but useful nonetheless. We make the case that economists have massively mishandled trade, that trade is an extraordinarily large uh, source of pain to a relatively small number of people, but those people have never been compensated for their losses, and that economists have sort of been, uh, you know, panglossian about trade without paying attention to this very core fact, which is that there's this, these poor people who get completely clobbered by uh, opening to trade. And that's not to say you shouldn't open to trade, but it should be that you really do compensate them for that loss. I, I think that we need to be more upfront about 
where where we have been right and where we are wrong and why we are right and why we are wrong. We also have this tendency to pronounce. We are sort of oracular. We say things like, here's wisdom, take it. And I think part of the reason people don't trust us is because we don't explain why their intuition may not be correct. We're trying to expose the way we get to the answer and not just say the answer. We mentioned that politicians are the least trustworthy among the public in your polls. But in order for economists to enact policy, they have to work with politicians. How do we actually rehabilitate that relationship? I think the problem isn't economists not working with politicians. The problem is that I think economists have worked systematically in many ways to undermine the reputation of politicians. This idea, economists are on the forefront of saying that, you know, government is bad. This, this is a Milton Friedman idea. And this, is, this idea keeps being repeated, that government is bad. And so I think what economists need to do is partly go back and acknowledge that government is bad is sort of a meaningless thing to say. Government is the only game in town for some some problems. There's no other game in town. You can't fix healthcare. There's no private solution for healthcare for those who don't have any money. The government is the only game in town. And in that context, to say that it's bad is is not helpful. You need to think about, yeah, there's lots of inefficiency in government, there's lots of inefficiency in the private sector, there's lots of corruption in government, lots of corruption in the private sector. We just saw how many people were bribing Yale and Stanford to get their children in. Those are private sector institutions. I feel that there's, there are failures everywhere. But I think this idea that somehow the government is kind of uniquely positioned to be corrupt and inept and therefore should be taken out of everything if possible is an extremely pernicious one. And I think we have kind of colluded with this idea too for too long. You know, you talk about Milton Friedman talking about government is bad, but clearly people like Ronald Reagan ran with that. But so did Wall Street. And to a certain extent, if there's an untrustworthiness of economists, Wall Street and investors and people who are benefiting from all of the wealth and the gains that society has brought forth are also contributing to that. Oh, I think the Wall Street is absolutely kind of central to this conversation. They're, they're sort of the model of people who often will let the economic theory speak for them whenever it's convenient and play very much into this dialogue about how they need incentives. Tax rates have to be low. Otherwise, you know, they're all going to stop working and start smoking pot in Vermont or whatever. You know, they're just like some, they have this, they're really absolutely, you know, the master manipulators of this discourse. In 2019, you were awarded the Nobel Prize in Economics along with Esther Duflo and Michael Kremer. That choice was a departure for the selection committee in terms of not only the type of research, but the diversity of winners, who are usually older white men. Does this mark a changing point for the economics field? Actually, the economics field is, at this point, you know, as I see, there are many, many leaders who are women. And I, I assume this is going to show up in soon in the in many more Nobel Prizes for women in particular. There are not that many, as many women as I would like there to be. Now the, the set of uh, women who are really leaders is 
is growing and I think that's, I see that as being one of the things that's going to shape the profession in the future. Professor Banerjee, we end each episode by asking our guests this question. What gives you hope? I, I think that the last 20 years, you know, you can, you can easily see all the wrinkles. You can see the rise of uh, nasty right-wing politics, but it's also been a great years for the world's poor. Poverty has fallen dramatically. Child deaths have fallen dramatically. Maternal mortality has fallen dramatically. These are all wonderful things. I mean, it's not, from the point of view of the world's poorest, the last 20 years are among the best years they've ever had. These are dramatic changes that have happened in their lives. It may not be sustainable. Maybe the environmental catastrophes will take it all away. I'm not saying we have solved all problems, but is it, is it the case that the last 20 years have been much better than anybody expected. Take any sort of obvious measure of the welfare of the poor, uh, you know, all kinds of good things have happened in the last 20 years. So I, I, it's hard to be a development economist, see those numbers, and be kind of grossly pessimistic. Professor Banerjee, thank you. Thank you. That was Abhijit Banerjee. He is a professor at MIT and the co-founder of the Abdul Latif Jamil Poverty Action Lab, In 2019, he received the Nobel Prize in Economics. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosli. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Brasalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Jonathan Stein and Rachel Dunna. (laughs) 